Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Welcome to the History of England, episode 347, The English Revolution. This episode is sponsored now and forever by Simon Hall at Hall's Hammered Coins, the online British coin specialist and long-term friend to the History of England. His website can be found at hallshammeredcoins.com. Now you'll find out why it's sponsored by him in a moment. Now everyone, we have arrived at the foothills of the English Revolution, a phrase rarely used now, I believe. The new orthodoxy from which one must not deviate on pain of death, or possibly taxes, being the requirement to describe the period between 1637 and 1660 as something like the Wars of Three Kingdoms, or the British Civil Wars, though you do appear to be allowed to use the phrase Scottish Revolution, or at least no one has shouted at me for doing so. Well, I shall be using the phrase English Revolution to a degree, while of course giving due deference to the other kingdoms involved, and would like to salute a Frenchman, one Francois Guizot, who actually coined the title English Revolution. Now Guizot was a liberal politician who tried to maintain a constitutional monarchy after 1830. So maybe we'd better give him the first quote of what will be many quotes. He wrote a history of European civilization, nothing major then, and described the struggle to establish constitutional rights thusly. The first clash took place in England. The effort to abolish absolute power in the temporal sphere and in the intellectual sphere, that is the meaning of the English Revolution. That is its role in the development of our civilization. 
It is a claim almost as grand as any that the likes of Thomas Babington Macaulay would give, and our Babbers was not a man given to understatement, let me tell you. Nowadays, I doubt you'd find a French politician saying that, and I am putting mind of our former PM, Mrs Thatcher, on being asked politely by a French journalist what she thought of the French Revolution, airily replying that, oh, we had ours 150 years earlier. That, I believe, is what's called the Entente Cordiale. However, let me now admit my deep wrongness in using the phrase English Revolution, or at least my threadbare justification for it. Threadbare, ladies and gentlemen. But in the same way as I defend my scurrilous love of the phrase, the Dark Ages. Peter Laslett, in one of those stunningly superb works of historical genius, a work called The World We Have Lost, argues, of course, very convincingly, that the idea of a revolution strongly suggests social revolution and change, as well as political. And in his view, horribly paraphrased by me here, there is no great ideology that tried to overturn the old social rules and structure, such as happened in France in 1789 or the Bolshevik Revolution. The extent of the legacies of the English Revolution are disputed. It is clearly a British, not a simply English phenomenon, and the social revolution that occurred in England and Wales started well before and continued well after. I am not worthy so much as to pick up the crumbs under Peter Laslett's table. And yet I stick by my phrase. Because there was a flowering and explosion of ideas and diversity that shocked many at the time. There was utter political turmoil and change, however strongly reversed. And there has been a legacy in political and social national thought that has affected later generations. And also because, well, you know, like the Dark Ages, it's a much more evocative phrase that conjures up the extraordinary character of the age. We need not to be fun suckers. I'll probably quietly drop it later on. Watch out for it. Anyway, I should be starting with Doe, rather than, as I've done, launching off with Ray or me or whatever. Today then, ladies and gentlemen, and all the company of this parish, we are going to talk about the historiography of the English Revolution. I am going to fill every revisionist historian out there with burning rage. Well, mild irritation probably might be a better phrase, by including the entire reign of Charles I in that, 1625 to 1649, of course. Because your view of the personal reign of Charles I is also part of that historiography. I will not cover in this the historiography of Oliver Cromwell in any great depth for two reasons, really. One, because the popular history of said revolution tends to be dominated by the chap. And really, it shouldn't be. He was a bit part player for much of it, though you'd never guess that from the 1970s classic film Cromwell, soon to be covered on the History of Technicolor podcast. The second reason is that he deserves his very own historiography when we get a little closer to the protectorate, because, you know, he's worth it. I remember on one of the many social media rages from Ireland about the horrors of the English, someone remarking that Cromwell was revered in England. Nothing, of course, could be further than the truth. Like everything else about the revolution, his historiography is deeply contentious and contested. Obviously, you'll get the odd mensch here and that. Can't avoid that. So, why start with historiography, I hear you ask? Can we not just get on with people hitting each other and that stuff? Two reasons again, because the best thing comes in twos. Feet, ears, arms, 
buttocks, just for example, off the top of my head. Firstly, the historiography of the Civil War is wild. I mean, wild with a capital W. In fact, come on, let's just capitalise the whole darned word. In fact, the revolution has been a key battleground, which has been part of forming the entire national history, and not only that, defined political allegiances such as Whig and Tory until the Dodden May. It is a deeply political period, though, you know, maybe a little less so now. Following on from that, then, is the second cheek in this brace of buttocks. One of the more recent articles about the historiography, by Peter Lake, rather wearily remarks that it appears we have now completed, over the last 400 years, after historical writing and research that would more than fill Xanadu's caverns measureless to man, a complete, neat 360 degrees, and are now back pretty much where we started with the contemporary politician and historian Edward Hyde, Earl of Clarendon, and his History of the Rebellion, written before his death in 1674, but not published until 1702. So, that makes the point that remembering our historiography is important. For as John Adamson wittily remarked, recoining George Santayana's classic phrase, those who do not remember their historiography may be condemned to repeat it, which is a hoot, though maybe this reworking is every bit as flawed as George's original concept, because as Blair Warden also remarked, every generation refights the English Civil War after its own fashion. I mean, oops, British Civil Wars. But look, could I get preachy just for a moment? Would you mind terribly if I did? Just for a sec. There is a lesson there for all of us, is there not? That today's new orthodoxy may well be tomorrow's heresy, or indeed vice versa. We'll hear about Thomas Babington Macaulay, have to call him Babington, an MP and historical writer most convinced of his opinions. The Prime Minister, Lord Melbourne, remarked sarcastically, I wish I was as cocksure of anything as Tom Macaulay is of everything. Basically, every generation rewrites history. And not just academic historians, history belongs to all of us, even if the academic guys are the keepers of the keys who really know where the bodies are buried. Now, at the end of the aforementioned weary article by Peter Lake, he argues for a more balanced and syncretic approach to the civil wars, a move away from the grand theories that seek to package everything up in a grand, unified theory, a gut. Although that's a lot less fun, it's got to be said, the syncretic thing. But temperamentally, that balanced, nuanced thing is indeed in the Mikhail Kerensky centrist dadland in which I inhabit. But in the words of Chris Tarrington, millionaire, we don't want to give you that now. Which brings me to the English Revolution Grand Day Out poll and competition, or possibly that should be the English Revolution Wrong Trousers, in recognition that I'm going to do exactly what Peter Lake begged his fellow historians to stop doing. Stop all the binary stuff, long-term struggle versus short-term crisis, and Lord forbid, stop all the roundhead versus cavalier stuff. There are two buttocks, sorry, reasons why I propose to do this. Firstly, because I'm not a historian, just a teller of historical stories and tellers of historical stories just want to have fun, and so on. And also, because I would like to get a reading of the temperature from all of you before we plunge into the waters of Charles's reign and the Republic. What are your preconceptions of why all this happened before we go into it? So what we're going to do is we're going to have a poll 
which will present to you some questions to answer about your views of the cause of the revolution in a couple of formats. These will all be mentioned in the following narrative, these views, so sharpen your pencils or go and see the transcript for this episode, which, by the way, I always publish on the historyofengland.co.uk. Did you know that, by the way, should you wish to read it? There you will also find the poll. And there will be a prize, gentle listeners, a prize draw for which you may enter for some coins. I'm very excited by the prizes, which have been found and sponsored by Simon at Hall's Hammered Coins, as I say. Full details are on the website, but they are three. There should be four, but I kept one for myself. Top prize, though, is absolutely wonderful. It's a coin minted at an Oxford under siege in 1644 for the king and it's later pierced to make it into a royalist badge. Now, you just can't get more civil war than that, can you? The second prize was also minted in 1638 to 1639 for Charles, just as things were really kicking off. And the third prize, a coin also minted for Charles. These are real mementos of this fascinating period, which would have been handled and used by people caught up in the thick of it all. Hi thee to the historyofengland.co.uk to find out more. You can do the poll and not enter the prize, that's absolutely fine. But if you do want to enter the prize draw, you will need to give me your email address so I can get in touch. But I will give that valuable information to no one else and not reuse it, which will keep the paparazzi from your door when you inevitably win. Good golly, I have warbled. Let us then begin at the beginning, which, as I have mentioned, was with Clarendon, who was a first-hand witness at the Centre of Affairs, as an advisor to Charles I, and who wrote the first monumental history of the period, the history of the rebellion. Now those days you didn't mess about when writing history. No neat single-volume affairs. Good Lord perish the very thought. Six volumes was the minimum. Now, Clarendon's work has stood the test of time pretty well in terms of its writing and quality, but as you might guess from the title, it is a little biased. The title, Rebellion, sort of gives it away what he thinks about it. After the Restoration, the history, language and heroes that you quoted from the period were heavily, heavily loaded and said something about your views. So Samuel Pepys, just for example, was asked to change a reference in an official paper from the late disruption between King and Parliament to the term rebellion. If you were a royalist, your hero was King Charles I the Martyr and you celebrated his day in the Anglican Church on the 30th of January. If, on the other hand, you were of a Republican persuasion, you spoke of the good old cause of John Hamden and Algernon Sidney. The historian Catherine Macaulay would later write of Clarendon that he is apt to disgust a candid reader with his prejudices and partiality. So might I make a personal remark here about the basic problem of telling the story of the English Revolution? This might be less of a problem for professional historians, who are trained to be as objective as possible, however impossible postmodernists might believe that to be. But for popular history, it seems to me that there's a bit of a problem with the period. This is because we want the English Revolution to be what we want it to be. It's much more attractive in this day and age to see the parliamentary side to be selfless labourers after liberty. So the religious extremities rather get in the way of that a bit like the Scottish Revolution, actually, you'd think the Covenant would be a much celebrated thing in Scotland. The radicalism of the Scots 
1637-1640, well ahead of their southern neighbours. But no, the big national story is all about a couple of baronial warlords winning a civil war in the 13th century and a letter complaining about ecclesiastical organisation at Arbroath. The Covenanters, who formed an extraordinary engagement with the people of Scotland, are relatively ignored because of their anti-Catholic views, which look so hideous these days. So, my very laboured point in an episode of Laboured Points is there is a real danger of interpreting the revolution in a particular light that we want to use it. Maybe that's why Cromwell is so hated in Ireland and his Irish brutalities relatively sidelined, on the other hand, by the English, because we want the lad here to be a seeker after liberty rather than a tyrant. Equally, we might want Charles to be a martyr, not a stubborn, duplicitous political ingenue. Anyway, that's my warning. Contentious? Maybe totally wrong, but there it is. Back to Clarendon then. The truth is that his judgments and insights of people are thought to be often very powerful, and he can't be accused of being far away from the action. He was by nature a constitutional royalist, a term which has stuck to a grouping within the royalist side, despite the obligatory griping from historians, those who wanted to make limited concessions to Parliament, but saw the monarch's right as paramount and crucial to defending the constitution and to defending the Anglican church and government by bishops. One of his contentions was that the personal rule of Charles I after 1625 was anything but a tyranny, as had been described. It was actually a period of great peace and prosperity, and there was absolutely no sign of trouble within the country more generally. The problem was just with a small group of malicious, ambitious malcontents who stirred up trouble in Parliament. The rebellion had no deep roots or long causes, and it wasn't the king's fault, whatever errors he may have made. This was a short-term political crisis caused by an ambitious group of rebels, and it could and should have been avoided. Now this went dead against the view that Edward Cook had made in Parliament in the 1600s, and they would be picked up by plenty of others, notably John Lilwell of the Levellers, but believed much more generally that all that they were doing in this rebellion was not revolution at all. It was just seeking to restore ancient rights that derived from before the Norman time, when the Norman yoke had crushed the egg of Anglo-Saxon liberties, an idea Clarendon and indeed Charles believed to be mm, Tommy Rot, stuff and indeed, oh yes, nonsense. But it was not long before the battle of what would become Whig history was picked up by a Frenchman, again as it happens, writing for a non-English audience. His name was Paul Rapin de Torah. In history from Alfred onwards, he declared that the English have been at all times extremely jealous of their liberties, and that English history was a continuous struggle to defend ancient freedoms, and that Parliament was the defender of the nation and its freedoms against royal absolutism. The defenders of the good old cause loved that, and battle was joined with Clarendon's message. Sadly, though, for this viewpoint, the next intellectual climbing into the boxing ring of history was no bantamweight, but a super heavyweight Goliath, David Hume. He wrote a racy and apparently short 
six volumes doesn't sound short to me, but hey. History of England, published in 1757. And David Hume blew away that happy parliamentary view of the eternal fight for ancient liberties out of the water for a hundred years or more. Now, Hume was not a fan of adversarial politics appearing in the 18th century. He despised the Whig-Tory party rage. He made a bonfire, therefore, of all those Whiggish favourites. There had been no Anglo-Saxon liberty. Actually, the Normans had brought enlightenment and culture, not ploughing furniture. Simon de Montfort was a cruel destroyer, and Magna Carta had brought no liberties for the people. And cruelest cut of all, David, cruelest cut of all. Anyway, liberties hadn't come from England, but from France. Ouch! Liberty came not from resistance to monarchy. Liberty came from the monarchy's growing power to restrain the tyrannical barons and defend the people against them. It required the authority almost absolute of the sovereign to pull down those disorderly and licentious tyrants who were equally enemies to peace and to freedom. He also incidentally made up the name of Tudors, which is interesting. I did not know that. I mean, I knew Henry and family didn't use the phrase, but did not know when it was invented by whom. So there you go. You live and learn. David Hume dissed the parliamentary heroes Pym and Handham. Cromwell was a tyrant usurping power by force and violence. Hume was very cross also at the time about Wilkes and his demands for liberty in the 1760s and he thought that the English had a good deal more liberty than they deserved, so nurks. Well, obviously the Whigs hated all of this and they threw mud at the great man, but Hume's narrative all stuck and also struck a chord because popular memory of the standing army of the Republic and Protectorate was still strong and the taxes that had gone along with them and they equated those wars and taxes with the Whig wars and taxes of the 18th century. Crowds at elections still shouted, Down with the long Parliament! And London street gangs in the 1750s, would you believe it, called themselves Cavaliers or Tory Rory Ranter Boys. It's not that the Radicals and Whigs didn't try to fight back, they did. Wilkes, with his History of England in 1762, for example, and Catherine Macaulay, who wrote a very popular history finished by 1783. But events such as the extremist anti-papist Gordon riots of the 1780s scared even Gibbon with memories of Cromwell. Then the French Revolution happened, as it will. Now at first, Whigs tended to respond angrily to one of their own number, Burke, and his reflections on said revolution, because Burke stressed the long evolution of the British constitution as an organic part of the British character, based on law, custom and the monarchy. He hated the violence of the French Revolution. He predicted France would soon be in the grip of a strong man. Oh, poo-poo, said the Whigs, poo-poo. So the terror, Bonaparte and two decades of European war, made the Whigs look rather sheepish and heaped kudos on the Burkean shoulders and theory. The Edinburgh Review remarked that it was thought as well to say nothing of Hamden or Russell or Sydney, for fear it might give spirits to Robespierre, Danton or Marat. So, Hume's distinctly sceptical view of the source of English liberties and his downer on the revolution reigned supreme in the historical narrative, 
and Burke's view of the glories of a gradually evolving mixed constitution reigned supreme alongside political suppression in Britain after the turmoil of the Napoleonic Wars, albeit beginning to be blown by the winds of growing working class collective and radical movements. And that's how it remained at the start of the 19th century. Until which hero should come into view over the hill in 1848, alongside the music of Karloff's Carmina Berena, riding the white steed of Whiggism, the shining armour of English liberty and the struggle against absolutism, brandishing the sword of narrative history. Why, Thomas Babington Macaulay, of course. That's who, intellectual and MP, and writer of talent. In 1848, his, again, sixth-volume History of England, was a racy, compelling peon to the Whig cause. And our Tom was not shy of making big claims. Not a man to hide the Whig light under a bushel. No marm. The Whig cause, in his view, was indeed entitled to the reverence and gratitude of all who in any part of the world enjoy the blessings of constitutional government. Just in case you had any doubts, who were the good guys here? But wait, there was more, much more, in the words of Ballou. To the Whigs of the 17th century, we owe it that we have a House of Commons. To the Whigs of the 19th century, we owe it that the House of Commons has been purified. Enough now. However, Tom McCauley's view of English history was not the Edward Cook and Lowborn one of Ancient Liberties Restored, nor one of popular agitation. That would be way too democratic an interpretation which would leave poor Tom a cold. No, the good guys here were the Whig elite in their promotion of trade, libraries, industrialisation and industry. And in the words of a Liberal MP, the history of the English constitution is a record of liberties wrung and extorted bit by bit from arbitrary power. Interestingly, Thomas Carlyle also published the complete speeches and letters of Oliver Cromwell at a very similar time. Apparently, according to Robert Toombs, it was very popular and helped rescue Cromwell's reputation from where it had lain in the dust as a duplicitous and bloodstained dictator. I find this interesting. Honestly, Cromwell's speeches tend, without wanting to be rude, at the long and rambling end of the spectrum. I just cannot imagine them these days filling a window displays in Waterstones. But maybe it was Carlyle's biographical introduction that did the trick. Anyway, Macaulay achieved his objective, especially among the aspiring non-conformist middle class and achieved wide admiration throughout Europe, actually, so that Britain's constitution and seemingly stable politics and mixed liberal rather than democratic constitution added to the idea that Britain was an exceptional place in the constitutional world. This was the heyday of the British constitution, rather than what it appears now, rightly or wrongly, as something of an outlier. Now, you on that, you might be interested to learn that there is a most bodacious short series of podcasts available to members of the History of England in the Shedcast series, and you can become a member and get access to it for a paltry, insignificant and frankly derisory fee at the historyofengland.co.uk website. Just saying. 
We might come back to this Whig view of history just briefly before the end, but instead let us return specifically to the English Revolution and the work of a historian, S.R. Gardiner. Though before we do, we might note that though Babers Mack focused on the Whig elite, the English Revolution was once more rehabilitated now and in favour. History really began to focus on the winners. In 1874, J.R. Green published a genuinely short history of England, short rather than the, oh yeah, it's only six, not eight volumes, sort of short, and declared that modern England began with the triumph of Naseby, which is, you know, slightly partisan. Puritanism was seen as the engine of progress now. There was a sort of romantic sympathy for the royalist corps, such as that immortally saccharine painting, When Did You Last See Your Father? by James, complete with a rather distasteful attitude towards roundhead oppression. But the revolution was essentially a good thing, which helped Britain become top nation, capital T, capital N, and Cromer's was A-OK in the main. We are in classic Whig history territory, as will be the target of assassination in the 1930s at the hands of Herbert Butterfield and the wonderful Sellers and Yateman line, which just encapsulates the whole thing in a beautifully crafted division of right but repulsive and wrong but romantic. Such a flash of genius to sum up the entire Whig historical tradition in one pithy line. Respect. So, in the words of Olivia Newton-John, let's get physical now. Let's really start to feel the heat of historical debate because this is where it really starts to become like a game of tennis. And the wheel starts to turn us, with us strapped helplessly to it, dipping in and out of the fire. Because the debate about the English Revolution really does at multiple times get very fractious. People do get grumpy and bang tables and spill ink. I've always thought that academia looks lovely from the outside, ivory towers and all. But it's really a cat flight, red in tooth and claw, a vicious fight for survival. And if once you show weakness, you are dead. I may be exaggerating for effect, but you know what I mean. So we start then with S.R. Gardiner, a Gladstonian liberal who's credited with the first really academically researched and written history of the period based on the techniques and objectives of the new German methodology of scientific history, of which I believe we can credit the work of one Leopold von Ranke. Gardiner wrote his History of the Great Civil War, 1642-9, in three volumes, between 1886 and 1891. It is a long time ago, but the voices of historians these days who know these things are still hushed in tones of respect for the work, even now. Now that must be something of an achievement in itself. And there is lots about the history which seems quite extraordinary. Not just that Gardiner leaves the rampant partisanship and lecturing of Hume and Babbers behind, but there's a framework of themes he produces that will define historiography, well, ever, basically, within the subject. They're all sort of in there. Some of them we forgot for a while. Things were lost which should not have been lost. And then suddenly, 100 years later, rediscovered, only for the rediscoverers to make great claims for a new British history. Aren't we moderns clever? principle among these is the point that the fate and stories of the three kingdoms of England and Wales, Scotland and Ireland are inextricably mixed. The English Revolution is inexplicable 
without understanding what happens across the British Isles and Ireland. This was an idea that would be touted again in the 1990s as the new orthodoxy that explained everything. Poor old Gardiner, or Cassandra as maybe he should have been known, who had made the point a hundred years earlier. Gardner also identifies religion as a major driver of conflict, both the rise of Arminianism and the idea that Calvinism was strong among the country gentry in particular, so a Puritan revolution almost. And then he did not ignore the Royalist Party as had by then become the norm. Instead, he recognised that the actions of the king and the varied factions around him espousing to Charles a variety of different strategies was just as important as what went on in parliamentarian ranks. OK, so, pencil sharpening, we have three themes already as part of our explicatory framework on which you'll be quizzed. The British problem across three kingdoms. Religious conflict. Royal policy and action. Alice Clark? There's another one, though. Protestantism as a force of social change. Embedded in Gardner's analysis is a dichotomy that will be very powerful and long-lived. A division between Protestantism as a radical, dynamic force for change and modernisation, as opposed to Royalism and Catholicism as the representative of an old, decaying, feudal order that obstructed, got in way of the inevitable lines of European progress. Thus, the theory goes, a country-based Puritan gentry and parliament was set against a pluralist, feudal royal court. In the early 20th century, this explanation of what was going on acquired a new force, not due to a historian necessarily, but a sociological theorist, Max Weber, and his uber-famous work, The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism which seemed to underpin and emphasise that idea of Puritanism as a dynamic force of progress. In the process of the continuation then of Gardner's work, this also meant that the royalist view began to be very much sidelined again. People focused very much on the eventual winners, gentry and parliament. That was where the interest lay. OK, so now more themes. To add to the three kingdoms, religious conflict, royal policy... We have conflict between a dynamic and confident rising class of country Protestant gentry against an aristocratic and feudal court. For decades, this seemed to satisfy the main themes. The revolution was about progress and modernity against the old order. OK, on to 1926 and R.H. Tawney, an English scholar born in Calcutta who refused an officer's commission to fight instead among the ranks during the First World War before coming an Oxford scholar, where he felt constrained to write, amongst other things, religion and the rise of capitalism. The Protestant story was upgraded and generally buffed until shiny because he focused on the Puritans as specific drivers and agents of change and added in a new class and a new social dimension to the mix, the industrious and dynamic middle classes gentlemen and ladies, great consumers of education, modern capitalist thought. There is another more purely theological angle to the debate about religion, though not sure if it fits quite with Tawney, but it's worth raising. So the question is, was the Protestant Reformation finished? One view has it that the Elizabethan settlement left deep divisions about the Reformation. 
Throughout Elizabeth's reign, there were indeed Puritans who believed a much more thorough Calvinist reformation was needed. And the theory was that these tensions never went away. That the revolution was in a sense the working through of the Puritan impulse towards a more complete reformation. So here, in effect, was England's Thirty Years' War. After all, religion was central to the revolutions in both Scotland and Ireland. Patrick Colliston, on the other hand, led the charge against this. He pointed out that the Puritans in actual fact remained firmly within the Church of England and almost exclusively fought for change within the National Church, not outside of it. Separatists, such as those that left for America on the Mayflower, were like the Jumblers. Far and few, I mean, not the green-headed bit, you know. As Derwin McCulloch remarked, the English Reformation was in fact a raging success, and by James's reign the vast majority had accepted the Elizabethan settlement, let us call it Anglicanism, and it was only the subsequent rise of Arminianism that snatched defeat from the jaws of victory and gave rise to religious conflict, leading to a massive surge in anti-papism and the fear of a creeping return to Catholicism. Or, oh, that's the idea. For Tawney, though, it was the Puritans' commercial, social and political dynamism that counted, and the inherent individualism of the godly, the idea that a ruler not of the true religion could be removed, the individual, unmediated relationship between individual and God through the Bible. They were the thesis to the antithesis of the old, redundant, royalist aristocracy who were destined for the scrap heap of history. Meanwhile, capitalism had also entered the lists, seized on by these Protestant middling sort. Historiography continued to focus on the ultimate winners and marginalised the royalists again. I mean, who wanted to research and write about a bunch of has-beens? The British Three Kingdoms approach had completely disappeared by now, as you might have noticed. Good Lord, yesterday's news. It was all about England now and progress versus reaction. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now then, capitalism, the big C, the 1930s. Guess what comes next? Hands up. You at the back? Marxism, sir. Yes, madam. Marxism it is. And a poppet of a historian. Well, not sure he's ever been called a poppet. Christopher Hill and his 1940 book, The English Revolution, 1640. Now, Hill completely inverted the Whig narrative. Listen to this, if you will. When we ask ourselves what has gone wrong with England in the past three centuries, one part of that answer is that the arrogant self-confidence of the ruling class was for too long unchecked. Whoa, don't hold back, Chris. Go for the jugular. Hill's interpretation of the English Revolution was one of class war, class conflict, a struggle of the hard-nosed bourgeois businessman against the old ruling class oppression. 
At the same time, Hill and his disciples of the new socialist left wanted history from below now, not from the top, the story of the revolutionary masses blotted out by the Whig history of the gilded elite. So maybe we'll have that sideline right now, actually, about what really kills off Whig history. The trouble with Whig history was it had been a story of success. England and its overseas offshoots leading the world towards freedom. The First World War gave the idea a bit of a bloody nose, it has to be said. Historians then followed up with a whack to the solar plexus with Butterfield et al. But there was a brief recovery with the Second World War. One of the reasons I suspect that Brits are so obsessed by that conflict these days. But then, post-war. Who can argue for top nation status anymore for, for Britain? Empire fell to pieces. Recently democratised nations such as Germany surged their head in the success and top nation stakes. Deccanism ruled. And the much lauded and loved British constitution now looked like a bit of an anachronism amongst all those written rationalist things. R.I.P. Whig history. Robert Toombs remarks that maybe this is why Whig history survived a little longer in the US than it did in the UK, because the US was now, of course, top nation, still a story of success. So back to Christopher Hill, who was an admirer of Tawney, as it happens, and one of the things in favour of Hill and the New Left was that their interpretation of class struggle mapped rather nicely onto Weber and Tawney's social, Puritan, progressive versus reactionary narrative. And so, between the 1920s and 1970s, we enter what John Adamson describes as a Cold War confrontation between Marxists on the one hand and their Tory and liberal opponents on the other. Historians like Tawney, Hill and Lawrence Stone on one side the more sceptical Webnerians like Hugh Trevor Roper and the American J.H. Hexter. There are some super-famous works of history along the way. Perez, Zagarin and his alienation between noble-dominated court versus country in the 1960s. Lawrence Stone and his story of the moral, political and military decline of the nobility in The Crisis of the Aristocracy, 1558-1641, which was published in 1965. So people now went looking for evidence of a rising successful Puritan-oriented gentry along with a declining Anglican aristocracy to confirm Lawrence Stone's brilliant hypothesis and the obvious place to go and look was of course in the counties. And so we get a period where everyone goes off to the country and starts digging around which, true enough, is fascinating stuff, really getting stuck into local society, so important to 17th century people, the kind of politics that dominated their lives, not all these kings and queens and parliament stuff, which people began to think we'd really overdone and overemphasised in the past. 30 years of county studies went on. History, though, it turns out, I've got news for you, it's an irritating sort of thing, which, annoyingly enough, a bit like people, really, seems to refuse to fit into nice, neat, overarching grand theories. Or at least, not this particular one. Because instead, what they found was a rather confusing mix, a quilt rather than a nice, clean linen sheet in three shades of taupe. 
and sadly a passion for King versus Parliament division was distinctly lacking in most places, or are anyway very often lacking. I have a few examples for you, some I prepared earlier, if you are ready for a tour of some English counties. In Lancashire, the main contrast was between rural areas dominated by the Stanleys, the Earls of Derby, who wielded a traditional feudal influence over their gentry, and along with a large surviving gentry, Catholicism, and they all sided firmly along with Derby with the King. On the other hand, there were the wall towns of Manchester and Bury who supported Parliament. Well, that sounds classic social war stuff, but hardly court versus country. In Cheshire, the gentry were very keen to just not have a war at all, thank you very much, and worked really hard to make a neutrality treaty stick and survive there. One of the fascinating trends of the revolution, incidentally, is this thing about people just trying to avoid this hideous community conflagration. Starting with local neutrality treaties agreed between them all and progressing in some cases to folks like the Clubmen. The Clubmen were a fascinating later movement where in some counties local people organised themselves into associations, armed themselves as best they could to resist anyone coming into their area, royalist or parliamentary, who came with war into their country. It's an extreme form of what Billy Boy called a plague on both your houses, an appeal to what they believed to be really important, keeping their own communities together, making a living, and a plague on those big theoretical disputes that seem so far away. I'm looking forward to covering the clubman in much more detail at a later date. On to the Midlands, neighbouring Northamptonshire and Leicestershire were as different as their rugby teams are today, given how comprehensively the Tigers outshine the Saints. Bit of local rugby trash talk for you there, so sorry. In Northamptonshire, it looks like a classic Tawny-esque bourgeois revolution with the landowners who had recently risen to gentry status through trade or office holding, a new dynamic, pushy, thrusting class, all supporting Parliament, versus the old world gentry clients of the Royalist Earl of Northampton, but on the other hand, in God's own county of Leicestershire, home of quality rugby, with a mass of gentry with deep local roots, basically staying out of the whole thing as long as possible. Their biggest obsession was not with these grand narratives at the top of government. Their biggest obsession was with their traditional local feud between the clients of the Earls of Stamford and the clients of the Earl of Huntingdon. Not national politics at all. Parliament? What Parliament? Sussex seems to divide geographically between a parliamentarian east and a royalist west. Kent was dominated by gentry rather than magnates, but most of them, again, just wanted to keep their heads down and avoid the whole thing. I mean, I could go on, but you get the message. It's a mess, a patchwork, a quilt. And one conclusion reached by the likes of Clive Holmes was that we'd been over-obsessing about national politics and king versus parliament anyway and the local gentry were surprisingly ill-informed about wider political issues and simply not concerned with affairs of state. We enter a phase then where the old grand political narratives beloved of the Victorians were almost universally banished to be gone, and localism ruled. It was concluded that all the King versus Parliament stuff was just the rippling of the surface waters and never touched real life in the deep, ocean depths of England. 
those great institutions of state we keep talking about, court, privy council, parliament, were increasingly ignored as just froth, scum on the surface of the sea. At the same time, the lefties brought out a new obsession with bottom-up politics. The study took off of the extraordinary flowering of radical sects, politics and religion. The diggers, levellers, ranters, Quakers began to have their days and the radicalism of the army and the Putney debates too. Topics which do remain utterly fascinating. Well, it's all utterly fascinating. OK then, into the situation in the 1980s and 1990s. Road our penultimate grand narrative and explanatory framework. The revisionists. Historians such as Conrad Russell, Nicholas Tiaka, John Morrill, Kevin Sharp, Mark Kishklansky and Paul Christensen. Of these, Conrad Russell, a bona fide peer of the realm, was probably at the head of the phalanx with his Causes of the English Civil War, published in 1990, and The Fall of the British Monarchies, 1637 to 1642 of 1991. Although Mark Kishlansky had been publishing a long revisionist line since 1979. The grand narrative of the centre was back on the agenda, a framework to explain everything. Politics and institutions of the centre being at the heart of the explanation once more. Although actually, the revisionist historians didn't always have a lot in common, except to essentially say, no, 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 up yours, Delors. Just say no. No to long-term causes and grand issues around the Civil War. The troubles of James's reign in the 1620s were nothing to do with it, and they were almost completely divorced from the 1640s in the revisionist narrative. There had been no great constitutional movement since time immemorial. There was no revival of ancient liberties, no rise of the gentry. The Marxist explanations were rejected on the ground of general pottiness. There was no great conflict between court and country. The country studies had shown that country were interested only in local issues, not the goings-on of the high and mighty at court and parliament. The 1630s were a halcyon time of peace and prosperity, just as Clarendon had said. For example, although the 1635 ship money tax protest of John Hamden had received great attention from historians, absolutely love it, The inconvenient truth, say it quietly, was that the tax was extremely successful in raising money, refusal rates were very low until much later on. However, all this no gave revisionists a bit of a problem. Though I am aware I'm really skimming over the varied and deep work of all these amazing historians. But the problem they had was this. If all of these great causes people had talked about were all pants, stuff and indeed nonsense, well, why did this extraordinary conflagration happen at all? The answer they came up with was essentially that this was a short-term political crisis. A short-term political crisis caused by three general areas. Number one, a functional crisis and a breakdown in government. This was caused by many things, but principal among them was the arrival of war and its associated pressure on the systems and relationship. And would you believe it? The Three Kingdoms thing was back. Hurrah! By this time, everyone had forgotten that Gardner had been saying this a hundred years ago. No, the revisionists were very pleased with themselves and called this the new British history. Emphasis on new and British. 
a wonderful new map book, incidentally, was recently published called The English Civil War. Lovely thing. I got it for my birthday. I love it. Twitter was awash with disapproving historians decrying the title with appropriate sucking on lemons before tweeting, Heresy. Okay, reason number two was the rise of Arminianism and the extraordinary extremity of the anti-papal reaction. Though, to be honest, anti-papism was pretty extreme anyway well before that, but there was general agreement that the growth of Arminianism had not been handled well by the political classes. Both number one and number two, then, link to the main reason, number three. This was political ineptitude on a grand scale by King Charles himself. This was all Charles's fault. He thoroughly messed up. At the heart of this was the character of Charles himself, which is certainly something we'll discuss much more. Conrad Russell focused on Charles's tunnel vision, what he described as an almost complete incomprehension of ideological positions remote from his own. He contrasted Charles's court, austere, formal, with James's louche, open and probably corrupt court. Charles held rigid, strong beliefs about what was right, the supremacy of the views of the king and the firm belief that the duty of subjects was to obey and quickly. Unlike his pops, he refused to discuss matters of state with subjects in Parliament after his initial few years, and this inflexibility made it impossible for him to deal with the complexities, which are extraordinary, thrown up by the wildly varying nature of his three kingdoms. Charles's arbitrary rule was a matter of temperament, not policy. It led to two groups of opponents at the centre, completely failing to achieve a meeting of minds, Parliament versus King, locked into a vortex of distrust, leading to implosion and explosion. And this revisionism, for what it's worth, with a few tweaks and wrinkles and whistles and bells, is the commonly accepted orthodoxy now. It's politics stupid until the next orthodoxy hits town, of course. Except there is one more, another version of revisionism which is now doing the rounds, led, I suppose, by Mark Kishlansky when he was arrived around, and in particular Kevin Sharp. Kevin, who wrote an absolute doorstopper on the personal rule of Charles I, a thousand pages of thematically organised detail. I defied you to read it all. I have not. My course tutor read it. I know that because tweets of curses of the name of Kevin Sharp and expressions of personal pain and loss rolled out until he had finished it. So this is a sort of new wave revisionism. It focuses again on political failure. No long-term causes and grand narratives here, please. We're British. Let's keep our feet on the ground. But in this version of events, the balance has shifted everything from being blamed on Charles to return to a rather oddly Whiggish attitude. That is Puritanism that provides the dynamic here. The mood music about Puritanism is very different, those we'll come to, and so is the mood about the king and his culpability. For Sharp and Kishlansky, it is absurd for us to expect King Charles to behave like a flexible, modern politician. Sharp wrote that Charles thought his first responsibility was to do according to God's dictates, as his reason and his conscience discerned them, rather than to act politically. 
Sir Charles was engaged in a comprehensive attempt to re-educate the English in the ways of true obedience and right religion. The political debate of his father's reign was repugnant to him, just not the way things should be done at all. So in a way, we are completing thereby the 360-degree journey that Peter Lake complained about all the way back to Royalist Clarendon. The real problem here was a group of malignant and rabidly Puritan common law lawyers in Parliament stirring up trouble. Puritan fanatics, ambitious and frustrated noblemen or venal opponents of Laudian clericalism, using populist methods to ride a wave of anti-papist fervour through the likes of the London Apprentice Boys. Insofar as monarchs are responsible, the finger points at James as much as Charles for allowing all that political debate and flexibility stuff. Peter Lake's article does end rather wearily. Have we really, he asks, spent all this time and effort and simply arrived back at Clarendon and a sort of short-term version of Whiggism, a constitutional crisis, albeit from a short-term reason and a short-term political crisis. How can this be? You can imagine the poor lad with his head in his hands, salty tears seeping between his fingers as he sobs with despair at the pointlessness of life and intellectual endeavour and takes off instead to tend beetroot at his allotment. The real stuff of life, the root of the beet plant. Truth is, there are a bit of this that do strike a chord, this the new wave revisionism, as it were. So in doing the history of the Scottish Revolution, available to members for the derisory low membership fee at thehistoryofengland.co.uk, by the way, the Three Kingdoms' political situation was fiendishly complicated for Charles. They all want different things, and Charles just could not bring himself to betray the very essence of what he believed to be his divinely commanded duty. And is it not presentism to expect it of him? He was responsible, in his mind, to God only. Kishlansky points out that Charles does compromise at various points. He's not completely inflexible. But the truth is that it's unreasonable to accuse one side, the Puritans and Parliamentarians, of being venal and corrupt seekers after power without really believing in their genuine concerns of the threat of Catholic invasion and the ruin of Protestantism, or their genuine belief in ancient liberties. The truth is that both parties were launched into a situation of which neither had experience, for which there was no template in previous parliaments, directly oppositional politics with the king. It had always been a matter for compromise, deference, advice, guidance. Lake, therefore, argues for a complex overlapping, balanced synthesis by way of explanation and an end to all these grand unifying narratives. And this, neatly, brings me back to your task, gentle listeners, your opportunity, your spot of fun. So now what follows to end this episode is a brief summary of the theories that we talked about and therefore the poll questions which I will inflict on you. Broadly speaking, then, there's a basic difference of opinion in question one about whether we are talking about an English revolution that came around as a result of long-term changes or whether it's all a short-term bunfight political crisis. The long-term explanations are legion. 
economic change as England became a more capitalist society and middling sort growing in extent, wealth and status, a gentry which had also grown in wealth and local influence and control, a long-term pressure for constitutional change, dating back at least to James I and his conflicts with Parliament, but you could go further and reference the growing role of medieval parliaments, Magna Carta and all that jazz, and the long-term outcomes of the Protestant Reformation, inherent tensions between those that accepted Anglicanism and the Elizabethan settlement, and those that continued to believe that the Reformation was not yet complete, the Puritans provoked to rebel rather than attempt to change from within the national church by fear of Arminianism badly handled and introduced. If you think these long-term inherent changes and pressures led to the revolution and that the short-term political crises such as the Bishop Wars and Short Parliament were merely triggers, not cause, then you should choose the long-term approach in the binary question in the poll. This is question one. And on the other hand, you might think that Charles's personal rule has very few signs of a tyranny, that few but the most politicised were even bothered by it. But from 1637, a range of issues came one by one in a relentless stream, bruised, repeatedly punched, which overwhelmed the possibility of a peaceful resolution. Charles's failure to compromise in Scotland, leading to a war he couldn't afford, the extra ordinary complexity of his three kingdoms, one still largely Catholic, another fiercely Presbyterian, the third Anglican with Puritan reformers panicked by Arminianism. This, combined with Charles's desire to impose uniformity across all of them, and his rigid view of the roles of king and subject that made compromise with an aggressive group of reformers difficult for him. Basically, a short-term political crisis. So that's the first question, the binary one. You must choose one or you must choose t'other. The next question is asking you to choose one or more of your favourite grand unifying theories. So here are your options. Just to form also a summary for our foregoing historiography on the principle that in gum-bleeding repetition lies the heart and spirit of education. So, number one, are you basically a Whig this is the pressure of constitutional change, of which we saw so much in the parliaments of James. A demand for a greater say in matters of state against the imposition of royal tyranny and suppression of parliamentary liberties. Or, two, are you an advocate of the social change thesis? Weber, Tawney, Christopher Hill, a Puritan dynamic class political change made inevitable by economic change and the rise of capitalism, social change, the emerging bourgeoisie and gentry? Or was this Britain's religious war, just later starting than those on the continent, the final working through of the Reformation, Puritans completing their Reformation, panicked by fear of Arminianism and the creeping return of Catholicism, but a trend that had started with the Elizabethan settlement or before? Or is this the revolt of the provinces, a Protestant, Anglican and godly provincial elite that saw the court as religiously pluralist and corrupt, that the protector of their liberties now was no longer the king, but the parliament and the common law? Or, revisionism, is this simply a poorly handled political crisis caused by war, the complexity of the Three Kingdoms situation, turned into a perfectly avoidable civil war by an inflexible and politically incompetent king? 
or six, your last choice. New wave revisionism. The Charles could only behave according to the dictates of his conscience. He couldn't behave like a modern politician. He wasn't one. He did try to compromise. He deeply believed in his role as protector of his people, but was faced by a coterie of parliamentary malignants out to wrest away his power in their own interests, using liberty as a blind. Back to Clarendon, 360 degrees. Now remember, you can choose as many or as few of these options in question two as you like. Think of the ones you think are important, more important. One final question is a fun question. What would you reckon you'd have been at the time? Would you have been a royalist, a parliamentarian or a clubman? I'm using clubman to indicate neutralism, avoidance, a plague on both your houses. Take your violence away from my community and have done. So, hi thee to the historyofengland.co.uk where you will find the quiz. Please ignore any scores along the way. This isn't about score. just had to have them. Choose wisely. If you want to enter the prize draw for the Oxford Mint coin and Royalist badge and the two other Charles I coins, very kindly sponsored by Simon Hall of Hall'sHammeredCoins.com, then enter an email into the first dialogue box before you start the quiz. And have fun! You'll have three weeks to enter. For the next two episodes, we'll return to matters social with W.G. Hoskins' Great Rebuilding and the story of architecture and living in the country houses of the rich and famous what was life like, before getting stuck into the rule of Charles and all that. And how exciting will that be? I hope you'll take part. Sorry for the monumental length of this episode, but you know, I could have made it twice as long. Happy voting, everyone. Good luck and have a great week. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.